Hi there. I'm your host, Kieran Kortatala, with a special intro slash disclaimer to this episode. When I started this podcast 18 months ago, I started on this journey to learn more. And I really thought that I will learn more about tech, some of the better ways of learning, better ways of education. But on this episode, uh, this ignorance I have is come to broad daylight uh, with the way I characterized one of the members of the LGBTQ community. And Dr. Johnson, with his infinite patience and candor and respect and kindness, finally <laughs> corrects me at the end. But I was immediately astonished, amazed, and also embarrassed on how little I knew about the topic that I thought I knew uh, very well. So please enjoy this episode and I really appreciate your forgiveness, if you can, uh, for being misinformed about this. Uh, if nothing else, I'm a better person for having this discussion. And I hope you are too, as you listen to this and get yourself familiar with uh, the topic of this episode. You know, I, I certainly don't want to add more by teasing you about Hello, everyone. Welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. I have with me an esteemed guest, Dr. Joshua Moon Johnson. Joshua is an award-winning author, activist, and educator, and nearly two decades of experience as an educational administrator and consultant. He serves as a Dean of Student Services and Title IX Coordinator at American River College and as Managing Partner at PMJ Consulting, LLC. Joshua has published multiple books. His first book, Beyond Surviving from Religious Oppression to Queer Activism, was number one bookseller on Amazon.com for gay and lesbian activism and was ranked number two on Book Authority's 25 best selling LGBT activism books of all time. Joshua's other books include Authentic Leadership, Queer People of Color in Higher Education, and his newest book, Queer and Trans Advocacy in the Community College will be released in 2022. Joshua previously served as the Assistant Dean and Director of the Multicultural Student Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and as a Director of the LGBT Center at UC Santa Barbara. Joshua received a doctorate in higher education and LGBT studies from Norton Illinois University, a master's degree in student affairs and diversity from Binghamton, Binghamton University, and master's degree in marketing analysis from University of Alabama. Joshua has served as a board member in, the, in a leadership position for multiple educational and social justice organizations, including NASPA, Student Affairs in Higher Education, Multiracial Knowledge Community, and Asian Pacific Islander Knowledge Community, and as a vice president for the Board of Sacramento LGBT Community Center, and as a board member and the lead for Equity Committee and the Association for California Community College Administrators. Joshua is from Mississippi, but he's happy to call Sacramento, California his home. Joshua, welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. Kieran, thank you so much for that um, very long introduction. <laughs> sorry, thank you. I'm sorry I wrote so much there. Um, super happy to be here in conversation with you. Um, I've seen some of your other guests for your podcast, and I'm honored to be included amongst such a powerful group. 
Thank you so much, Joshua. That means a lot coming from you with all your accomplishments and uh, and everything you have done so far, whether as an author, educator, entrepreneur, and the like. Um, let's start with some of the breaking news, if you will, where Florida recently, uh, actually just yesterday, has annulled or canceled Disneyland's permission to have their own independent you know, state or city, if you will, um, in Orlando, because of this don't say gay bill. Let's, because it's so, this situation that we are seeing right now with so much of progressive ideas on talking about race, talking about um, you know, your sexual orientation or identity in an explicit way, is getting some real radical responses from other quarters, whether it's right wing or otherwise. You know, can you talk, can you give me a brief statement on where we are as a country with respect to this, you know, confluence of events, whether you want to call it confrontation between progressive and right wing ideologies, or you know, is there some other way to describe it? Yeah, I think we are in such a u- unique time and like and realistically I haven't been following all the exact details that are going on in Florida. I know the basics of it for sure and I think that overall as a nation, you know, and as a global like community, we made so much uh, change in progress supporting specifically probably gay and lesbian folks and still a long way to go for transgender and non-binary uh, folks with that as well. And I think as we see that communities are becoming more vocal around we're a part of this society and we deserve rights as well. Um, As that becomes more of an open discussion um, and people are a little bit less afraid to have to hide their identities, um, at the same time we're seeing resistance to that as well. And so folks are feeling like, you know, if we're pushing for advocacy and rights for LGBTQ plus folks, people who disagree with that don't want that to be to, to be happening. Um, and so I come from Mississippi, as you said, um, I come from a very uh, tight knit religious community. And so both of my parents are Pentecostal ministers. I grew up in a very fundamentalist in evangelical space. Um, pretty much all of our friends were from the same uh, Pentecostal church. We did homeschool together. We didn't want, we could not watch uh, non-Christian TV or listen to non-Christian music. So the world that I grew up in was very anti-LGBTQ. And so um, that exists still today in society. And even as I left Mississippi and Alabama and I moved around the country and I, and I think when I moved to California, I thought, oh my God, I, I'm moving to this land of progress and inclusion. And realistically, there's very um, anti-LGBT people um, in California, especially Northern California, where people think like, oh, you're close to San Francisco and people are loving and diverse and hippies. Um, there's still definitely a lot that needs to be done here as well. Um, and, and I think when I think about the specific don't say gay bill and, and, you know, the people who are against it and they articulate their perspectives around this is something that is um, too much to introduce to young children. Uh, and realistically, I think that when you're talking about any kind of sex, uh, whether, you know, we're talking about heterosexuality or non-heterosexual relationships, I'm a huge proponent of introducing these topics to children at the level that they're at too. So like, we don't want to go super descriptive, whether you're talking about, you know, sexual relationships between a male and female or other types of partnerships. Um, And so that's not just true for like 
addressing sexual identity, but just for like safety around sexual assault. And I think about like, I don't have children, but I have 10 little nieces and nephews that I'm protective of. And I want them to know like about their body and what people should or should not be doing and touching them. You know, right. and I think that that's an important concept of no matter how old someone is, we can talk about um, bodies and relationships and love in a way that's understandable for them. So when people are going on this radical idea of, oh, you know, when we talk about LGBTQ inclusion in the schools, we're talking about graphic sexual depictions. No, I don't think that we should be doing that. Um, we should be talking about relationships and love and bodies and safety um, at the point where a child can understand those types of things. And so, uh, so I think the people who are resistant to it probably don't know many details around what's actually the goal of LGBTQ plus inclusion. Right. I think that's care. That's where that's what gets lost when when somebody says, you know, hey, elementary school students should not be learning about homosexuality or heterosexuality. It's like, well, first of all, nobody's teaching anybody any sexuality. Uh, so we we all know that. I, I don't think they're going to talk about any um, hetero or homosexuality in, uh, you know, in the in an elementary school classroom. However, I think the discussion is about, you know, if there is a text or story about a father and mother, cisgender, mm -hmm. a hetero, heterosexual family, should there be a story about, you know, father and father raising a child or mother and mother raising a child? And I think that is what they take exception to, but they kind of code it under, you know, we are teaching our kids to be yeah. gay or something, which is ridiculous. So is that the premise of like, I think the reason why I'm asking you this is because you are sitting at this confluence of education and also LGBTQ rights. And how do we consolidate them together so that it's a lot of this is about education and progressive ideology without really uh, interjecting with uh, their identity itself, uh, whether hetero or you know, LGBTQ identity? Yeah, and I think for myself, and and I, I would say first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a social justice advocate and activist, and I do that in the form of education right now. And so for me, as I think about, we have laws on the books in most states, not all states, that protect LGBTQ people. So for example, my home state of Mississippi, sexual orientation and gender identity are not included in the hate crime laws. So when I go home to my family, um, I'm very careful about how I present myself, how I walk with my husband, because I do, I am fearful of violence that has happened to me and could happen to me again. And also knowing that my home state does not protect me. And if someone assaults me because of my gender expression or my sexual orientation, legally, they don't even consider that a hate crime. And so I think that when we're talking about physical safety, that's a huge piece of it. And so the way that we address that, you know, when we think about why are people feeling like it's okay to enact violence on me just because of who my spouse is or because how I present myself with my clothes, fashion, makeup, does that give people the right to physically attack me? Um, and I think most people, no matter how radically conservative evangelical fundless, will say no to that. And, you know, and I love my family. I know that they love me, but we have very differing views around LGBTQ rights. Um, pretty much every social political thing that I stand for, they're on the opposing end of that. Um, and I know that they love me. And so when we have these conversations with people who we don't agree with, I bring it back to some basics. And so even if my mom 
doesn't agree with my marriage to a man, or maybe sometimes the way that I dress or express myself, she does not agree that people should have the right to violently attack me. Um, and I think that we can all get to that point. So then I say, okay, well, if you don't want me, your son, who you love to be physically harmed, what will it take to get us to that point? And I often go back to education. We need to educate people from a young age that these people, whether you agree with them or not, they're a part of our communities and they have a right to be safe with that as well. So when we, from a young age, when we other people and we dehumanize them and their relationships, we create this ability for us to harm them and it's, it's not even considered because they're not considered human or they're not considered at the same level and value of us as well. And this has been done historically for, you know, hundreds of years, not just for LGBTQ people, but for people of color as well, where we dehumanize right. them. We made them legally less of a human than white Americans were. And then when we killed them, still people being killed by police and law enforcement and other spaces, and we don't react in the same way because as a society uh, in the United States, we don't value BIPOC people, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, or LGBTQ people at the same levels that we value white American folks, cisgender folks, heterosexual folks. And that comes from an early age of how we socialize people through educational curriculum, along with other forms of socialization. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, I think uh, you're absolutely correct. Education is the greatest equalizer, whether it is come to whether it comes to race, uh, race equality, or gender equality, or you know, sexual orientation equality, whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it. However, you know, I was looking back at some of the history, and it looks like higher education was not wasn't always for. Um, race equality, definitely because of the desegregation um, and also the, you know, sexual identity equality, because I heard that Harvard actually expelled some students, um, you know, 30 years ago or 60 years ago. Oh, I would say higher education still today um, operates from a lens of white supremacy, patriarchy, heteronormativity, Christian centric ideology. And that's how higher education in this country was started. Higher education or education in general, those systems were created for men. First of all, it wasn't that long ago where women couldn't go to university. So that's not even that new. I mean, as well as, you know, a generation or two ago, most people of color could not go to any institution that they wanted to as well. In addition to folks, when you look at ability, it's designed for people who are non-disabled. It's designed for people who are middle class or upper class. You know, it's designed for folks who are heterosexual and Christian. Look at the calendar of almost any academic institution and it revolves around Christian holidays. And so although higher education has evolved in the last few decades to allow people who are women or, you know, uh, minoritize people by race and ethnicity or other religious or abilities to come, um, it hasn't done much to actually shift to include them and enable them to succeed. And so when you look at who has access to succeed in higher education, it's still identities that are predominantly dominant and powerful within the context of our country. And so I work within the field of education because I'm trying to change it. I think right. that Higher education is as messed up as the criminal justice system, the healthcare system, religious organizations. Like, it's not really an organization or industry specific issue. It's a societal issue. In right. every piece of society you go to, you're going to find power 
and privilege and people oftentimes fighting to oppress each other. Um, even as I think about within you know, communities of color that we often don't even come together um, to really address large systemic racism, we just fight to be the best of the black and brown people. And the same thing is true for the LGBTQ population. It's like sure. there's a, a pecking order, you know, white, cis, gay men kind of get the most power and access, and then maybe lesbians, and then trans and non-binary people are often excluded and still highly disproportionately impacted when it comes to income and with violence. So what do you say to people when they say, well, the reason for that is because when you look at the population, the num so isn't it because of the number of people that are is it is it because of the percentage of people? For example, if their society has, we'll just say X number of penguins, you know, 80% of the society yeah. is penguins and 15% are foxes and 3% mm -hmm. are ostriches and 0.1% are, you know, sparrows. You know, is, how do we get, a, and sparrows might think, you know, I'm 0.1%, I need equal representation, mm -hmm. but penguins are thinking, well, I am 80%, why should I give equal representation mm -hmm. to 0.1%? How do we, but I know from a human social justice perspective, mm -hmm. sparrows and penguins should get the same mm -hmm. rights. But when 80% of the country is penguins, how do we make the penguins realize mm -hmm. that sparrows are equal? That's yeah, the question. I think about that a lot and it's complicated. And I definitely think when, when there's something that's the majority of people, obviously like their food becomes more normal or their language becomes more normal or their media and culture becomes a little bit more normalized. So definitely there is that aspect of majority culture will end up becoming more dominant in many situations. I think that there's so many layers to this. I think about like historically what has happened in the past frames where we are today in the lasting impact of things like colonialism uh, still shows up today. So you, I, I think about countries like South Africa where white people are very much the minority in South Africa, yet they have a lot of the power. And so there's situations like that. In California, you know, Latino, Latina, Latinx populations are the majority population in California. They don't have the most access control or wealth in California. And so history has a huge impact on where we are with it as well. And so that's a hard part. I mean, there's so many organizations where it's female dominated, yet females and women don't have the power. My first time after grad school, so I did my undergrad and my master's in marketing. My goal was to always do kind of fashion marketing was when I was in undergrad. Um, and I kind of got my dream job. I got to be in, a, in an executive training program to become a buyer at a Fortune 500 fashion company. Um, and I always thought it would be very like, you know, women empowering and LGBTQ inclusive. And I got there and it actually wasn't. And that was surprising to me. Um, and even when I looked at like the most entry level, maybe let's say it was two thirds women. You move up another level is about 50% women. Every level you moved up, there were fewer and fewer women. And so even in a female woman dominated industry or not dominated, populated industry like fashion, it still was controlled by um, mostly white, straight, cis men. 
And so white straight cis men were probably the minority within fashion companies, yet they had all the power and the control. And so I think that there's so many levels. And so, yes, we've come a long way with sexism in corporate America. We still got a long way to go with corporate America at the same time, too. So sometimes power does go with majority, but sometimes power is power. Um, and we have to dismantle so much to try to even the playing field. I mean, I think both taking the African analogy and also, you know, this uh, industry analogy, it might be historical too, in that, you know, yeah. for example, you know, Henry Ford, Ford Motor Company ha might have some 80-year-old white people that are still at the top of it. Uh, that doesn't mean that, and the lower levels are continuing to rise up. So I think like anything else, transformation hopefully will continue to grow. Yeah. Uh, you know, is that what you're thinking or is there something I mean, more systemic? Yeah, I mean, sometimes when I think and I think of myself as kind of an intersectional social justice advocate. And so as I talk about things like race, I hope that I'm not focusing only on race. I'm thinking about, yes, if I'm advocated uh, for Black folks, I'm thinking specifically, what does this look like for Black women? What does this look like for Black trans women? And so as I think about complicating these narratives of justice and advocacy, um, it can become very overwhelming. Um, as I'm talking about LGBTQ issues, as I'm talking about immigration, as I'm talking about poverty. Um, and so as you're talking about, I think we've made tremendous progress, even in the last 10, 20 years, we've yeah. made tremendous progress. So I don't want to discount the amount of work that has been put into kind of civil rights and social justice work, but I also want to recognize we have room to grow with that at the same time too. Yeah, I like the balance because I think I I struggle with this because, you know, I think my son is a, uh, I, I talked about in other podcast episodes, his son, he started a podcast called Politidine and you know, he is middle of the center um, from a, we're both fiscally conservative, fiscally, you know, center of the right and socially center of the left. So we are kind of in the middle, but there's one, um, you know, on his podcast, he has a co-host and everything is like, well, you look at this one problem and you define it. And I agree that we have a long way to go, but I think I'm glad that you recognize that, you know, things are at least moving in the right direction. And we can't always be, you know, looking at the negatives. However, I do understand that we have to make steps to continue to make social justice a, a core part of everybody's curriculum, if you will. So is that one of the things that you pursue in higher education? Yeah, and so most of my work is with college students. And so one of my roles is I do help organizations and specifically faculty who are designing curriculum for their to learn around what LGBTQ identity was, whether it was light children's book or media depiction in a movie or actually like LGBTQ theory explaining to me more about myself, that would have been transformative, that would have been healing, and that would be life-saving for so many people. So forget all these people who are worried about um, trying to change political ideas. I'm trying to change, I'm trying to save people's lives. That is literally what I'm trying to do is to save people's lives. And sometimes saving their lives starts with reading a children's book. That is sometimes the easiest thing that we can do with it as well. Um, and I think that that's what people forget. I'm not talking about political ideas. I'm talking about lives, people's lives. 
Yeah, I don't believe in this premise that somehow you can indoctrinate somebody just because you tell them a story. For example, growing up, we hear all the mythological stories about, you know, all the gods or demigods, you know, with all the double quotes you want to add, killing all the bad guys, right? So, or you will watch movies with, you know, the heroes beheading or breaking bones of the bad guys. We don't go and start beheading people or, you know, killing bad yeah. guys. So it doesn't, I don't understand this concept that kids are so malleable that once they, once they look at a murderer, they want to become a murderer. Or, you know, once they look at, you know, heterosexual, they'll become this, or they look at this and they become that. I don't understand it. I think it's just a matter of maybe fear. You know, I, yeah. I don't understand what that premise is. I mean, this is not something that I've exactly researched, but this is from my own lived experience in my involvement with, um, you know, more evangelical spaces. Um, I would say my assumption is that people don't think it's going to turn their kid gay. I think what it's going to do is it's going to affirm to their kid who's having these feelings that this is okay. And so, um, I, I think about my evangelical space in my family. Um, and I don't think that any of them think that something that exposed me to whatever made me have these feelings. I had these feelings that I was attracted to men, wherever that came from. I think most of what my family thinks is that there was some kind of damage between a relationship with me and my dad or something like that. That's kind of the prevailing ideology in evangelical spaces. So the assumption is, yes, you might have these feelings, but acting on those feelings is a sin. And so you should do everything you can to pray and avoid and hopefully these feelings go away. And if they don't go away, that God would give you the strength to resist any action of that, those feelings. And the, my assumption is if these, you know, eight-year-olds are in their classroom and they already sort of have some of these feelings and their teacher or this book says, if you have those feelings, it's normal and it's okay and we're going to celebrate that. That's what scares people. They don't want um, educators to give their children who are queer or trans the permission to be who they are. And so it still goes back to this idea of you can be socialized to be gay or trans or whatever it is, and you could be socialized to not be gay or trans. And that's right. one of the huge debates still to this day. Um, I think that majority of our country agrees at this point that some people are gay. Okay, that's what it is. I think there's still a long way to go to understand trans and non-binary folks, but I think many people in our country are like, some people are gay, whether they chose to be gay or they're born gay, who cares? They're gay, whatever. Um, and so not exactly. everyone agrees with that, but many people, I would say, you know, I don't know, maybe the last poll I saw was like 60% of the United States agrees with that. Something right. like that. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think, and I also agree with you on the premise that they don't want to normalize this lifestyle because, mm -hmm. again, for for some for whatever reason they have is, you know, they, there's some religious beliefs around it, even though they are misconceived or vice versa. Um, so we can't solve all those problems, but let's talk a little bit about you know, higher education itself. I was kind of concerned a little bit when you said, you know, higher education is still, um, you know, almost, it's still majority driven in that, you know, they're more favorable to, um, you know, Caucasians and less favorable to all the other races. But I think 
you know, I, I'm not sure how to wrap my head, or, head around it because, you know, not, not because I'm contesting it. I, I just don't yeah. know enough. So I just want, and you are in a position of authority in that you know enough. So when I, but I, I want to just talk about a couple of things that I'm at least privy to in that my son went through his, uh, you know, high school, like he's a senior in high school now, he'll be, he'll have his prom in next week and he's going to go to Georgia Tech. But we always joke saying, you know, if you were, a, I don't know, if you're not a Indian, uh, you would have been in Stanford or you would have been in Yale because it would be yeah. so easy for him to get into it. Uh, and the same thing, I think, again, if he wants to be gay, I want him to be gay. I don't care. Uh, but the thing is, if we were, I feel like if there was somebody with similar um, a similar profile like him and if he was mm -hmm. homosexual I think he would have gotten preferential treatment at Harvard at least from admissions perspective is that a misnomer or am well, I yes and no I mean and I think about these things too. so I'm Korean American my mom's Korean my dad's white and so when looking at kind of how this this idea or this myth of affirmative action um, especially I do kind of diversity equity inclusion work and oftentimes um, Asian American, East Asian American folks are excluded from that conversation, right. as well as multiracial folks are excluded from those conversations. Um, right. So, yeah, I've thought about that a lot, too, especially someone who's in academia, who went through four different degree programs. Like, I've had to go through those application and admissions processes myself as well. And I've often thought, has my identity helped me or hurt me? Um, and, and, I'll give some of my own personal perspective on that, but I think when it comes to like sexuality, like if, you know, someone is applying as a gay or lesbian or bisexual, pansexual, queer person, I don't know if our current country cares or values that enough to give favoritism to it. Um, maybe later on, but now, I mean, even higher education, I would say overall, higher education's um, gravitation towards uh, diversity and inclusion to me is not altruistic. It's done because of pressure. They're doing it because of pressure from the media or they don't want to get canceled or they need X numbers of students or they're going to be looked at like they're too white. So they tokenize whatever is the cool thing to tokenize right now. Um, but no irrespective of the pressures, at least they're trying. I think that's what I meant I by mean, that. I think some of them are trying. Some of them are performative nonsense. Um, and so I'm a skeptic of everything, FYI. But um, I so can tell. <laughs> no one even counts LGBTQ students pretty much, and no one reports out to it. So I think when it comes to LGBTQ identity, most of the time, higher ed admissions or job applications don't care because most of them don't even ask. But I would say you're for someone applying to prestigious, highly selective education, I think if it's woven into the personal statement narrative in a empowering way of like, look, I faced these obstacles because of my sexual orientation, my gender identity, and I overcame them. I think that that could be a powerful statement that could help someone uh, with admissions applications, not hopefully because of a quota that they're trying to fill, but because they've demonstrated, I faced an obstacle and I overcame that. But when it comes to race and ethnicity and admissions applications or job applications, um, I think we have kind of over, we're, we're in this process of possibly overcorrecting, who really knows. Um, and so I often think about 
the um, what people are born into and how have they done based off of what they were born into because all of us were right. not born with the same opportunities and so i think that if let's say there was a black trans woman with a disability who went to you know public education with a single parent who never could afford tutoring, who couldn't help them apply to college, who never really knew that there were SAT prep classes. And that person graduated and made a 32 on their ACT and had a 3.8 GPA. That is freaking amazing. And so I think if someone can get to that point with such little resources and guidance, I clap for them and I applaud them yeah. versus a white heterosexual able-bodied Christian person with two parents who put them into private school, who gave them ACT prep classes, who helped them fill out their application, who hired a coach for them to write their essays, and that person made a 4.0 and a 34 ACT, okay, who cares? Like, <laughs> um, I think it's like that level of resourcefulness and resilience. So I have often kind of felt like, gosh, I feel like I'm being disadvantaged because of my identity at some points. And I definitely have had some disadvantages in my life, but I've also had a lot of privilege. Even though I grew up poor, I always had health insurance. I had two parents my whole life. Um, I never really had to worry about what I was going to eat from my refrigerator. And I currently had and have never had any type of disability. So yes, I've accomplished a lot. Is that comparable to what other people have dealt with? I don't know. And so sometimes when I have those feelings, I'm like, gosh, I lost. And this has happened to me quite a bit. When I go interview for jobs and I lose the job, I look up to see who got it. Um, <laughs> and it's very common that I have lost. I've been number two for a lot of senior level jobs, and I've often lost to African-American people. And mm, so interesting. There, there could be this tendency, and then I'll look at their resume or look at them on LinkedIn and be like, how do I compare to them? And there definitely have been times on paper where I look like, oh my gosh, I've done so much more. But then I also think about, I haven't had the same battles or obstacles that they have had at the same time too. Because in academia specifically, when I show up as a Korean and white person, people look at me and assume that I'm going to be good at school. Right. That's not what they do to Black people in our education system. Yeah, I think, I, I don't know, I, who am I to tell, right? I mean, so, uh, but I, I do think that higher education is definitely, maybe there's two-pronged approach going on. Definitely there's an overcorrection on the left where anything you, there is this idea that yes, these societies uh, or these groups have been oppressed before. So let's try to correct that and uh, fix that issue. but you know, like anything else, let's take the penguin sparrows analogy, you know, and, and trust me, in India, we grew up uh, in the, I was called like upper caste. Um, so, you know, where the upper caste was treating the lower caste, un, you know, called them untouchables, treated them like slaves. So to fix that, India has this reservation system where they would have um, any, you know, there's seats assigned to those castes so that they can grow up and bring bring back the bring back the society so that everybody mm -hmm. has equal platform so i think that level playing field will not happen uh in 50 years maybe it'll take a couple hundred years yeah. but uh you know it's it's an interesting thing to watch and see us be in personally like like just like you're describing saying you know hey 
I should be in that job if I were a white person or if I was cisgender. If I was black, I would have gotten it. I think that's what Varun and I would think about. Like, well, if you were Hispanic, yeah. you would have gotten it or something. And that's really hard. as well. And I think it's even more challenging when we're putting kind of like minoritized people against each other, you know, and, and so that's kind of the challenge. And, you know, and by no means have I ever, you know, I, of course, like, you know, personally, internally, I get up, you know, like no one wants to lose. And so I have to process that. And I'm fortunate that I have been exposed. And I think and talk a lot around kind of like aspects of racial coalition and intersections of identity and power and privilege. So, you know, I can rationalize and understand it. I'm really happy. And I feel like we need definitely more black folks in senior levels, especially in higher education. And so I, I quickly get over anything where yeah. I didn't get a job. Um, I agree. I think when some of these kind of legal compliance, quantifiable aspects of diversity, you know, it's an effort and sometimes it's purely motivated. Oftentimes it's not purely motivated. And I think it sometimes it tries to simplify things that are really complicated and complex, which is, it's limiting. And so I think that that's often where we end up. And then I also think about specifically in the employment field, where we're putting people in these roles because of their identity, it's tokenizing. And so a number of my jobs, I worked to be that person to recruit, um, you know, specifically, let's say black and brown faculty members. That's like every institution's goal of like, we need to increase black faculty. And so I worked on these teams in projects where we're, we're actively recruiting them and then they get there and then they're miserable because people mistreat them and they microaggress them and they exclude them and tokenize them. And so we can't just recruit these folks, put them in these roles because of their identity and then abandon them. And so it's like, we still need to do a lot of work to transform our organizations that can welcome, include and support folks from these backgrounds. Yeah, again, I think it's, I'm hoping that it is just a matter of time uh, and the time will allow everybody to recognize each other and normalize these relationships and help us treat each other socially um, in the most fair and open and transparent manner. Um, and again, um, there's a lot we have covered today, but I, I'm kind of struck by your life story growing up in Mississippi, um, you know, for of all things, uh, just growing up in Mississippi would have been hard, uh, you know, being, <laughs> even if you're a cisgender man, cisgender man, but you're uh, half Afri African-American, half Korean, uh, and uh, you know, you're, um, you know, you're, you're homosexual. How did that define you in terms of your ability to become who you are? What drives you to pursue, pursue this goal and, you know, be cheerful and yeah. balanced about it? Yeah. And, you know, and I love my upbringing in Mississippi in many ways. And, and I do identify as multiracial. My dad's white American. My mom is Korean American. She immigrated from Korea to the U.S. in the 1970s. And so her own experience as an immigrant Korean woman in Mississippi in the 1970s learning English. So that's her whole her old journey. And I take a lot of strength from my own mom's story who raised me along with my Korean grandmother. Um, and then I do identify as queer. Um, I often don't use the term homosexual, mainly because it's been used to kind of, um, 
you know, uh, I guess condemn or diagnose people from the religious and the medical community. So um, I know that it's right. still a term that's used sometimes. So not to like um, challenge you by any means, but like I know no, I got to upgrade my nomenclature oh, too. Okay, so, um, okay. Well, some folks yeah. have kind of a, a a negative reaction to that term because it's been used in a really hurtful way. But I do identify as queer. Um, I have had like I don't know like children relationships with women, and so um, but I do. Uh, adopt a queer identity. Um, I identify as gender non-conforming, meaning that like I feel pretty comfortable at this point in my life expressing the you know the feminine aspects of who I am, especially through fashion and um, makeup and uh, dancing or and all these kind of things. Um, and I think that you know that's been a part of who I was when I was growing up in Mississippi. Um, I have two older sisters and two older brothers, and I'm the youngest of five. And my older brothers are next to each other in age, and they're pretty gender conforming boys what you would think of. My sisters are both, you know, a year and a half apart and they're both pretty gender conforming of what a girl would be and should be. And then I showed up. And so from an early age, being the fifth child, seeing my two brothers and my two sisters, I thought about gender a lot. Um, and sometimes I did feel comfortable to express my gender in the way that I wanted. And I mm -hmm. danced all the time. So I did ballet. I was on the church dance team. Like I choreographed dances. Like, so in some ways I did feel really comfortable, but then in other parts of my life, I didn't feel comfortable, especially as I got older. I ended up quitting dance um, in high school because I was so scared that people would find out and what that might mean for me socially, also physically through aspects of violence that people will do. Um, so I did have to kind of police how I expressed myself living in Mississippi. And even now when I go home, um, I do have to think about what that is. And so unfortunately, I have been, you know, the victim and survivor of multiple hate crimes where once I ended up in the hospital, because people physically attacked me because of my sexual orientation. So this was not in Mississippi. But um, but that's something that has traumatized me. That's something that I think about of do I feel comfortable wearing this today? Sometimes I have to ask that question as I'm going to work in higher education. Do I feel comfortable wearing this to the workplace because the way people might look at me, the way other administrators will talk to me or treat me. Um, I've often been one of the younger administrators in my career, being younger, uh, being small, being Asian American, being queer, being feminine. At some point, they put you in this little box and they uh, treat you like a child and they kind of strip away any aspect of what a leader should be. Um, mm -hmm. So I know in most contexts in edu higher education, people don't look at me and be like, oh, that's a leader. They look at me like, oh, that's cute or whatever they say. Um, and so that's a constant battle, not just for my physical safety or social acceptance from my family and friend circle, uh, but also in my career as a DEI professional, I have to regularly think about how I'm going to show up based off of my gender expression or other aspects of my identity. All right. Well, I'm so sorry. I, I did not realize, uh, again, this that shows my ignorance as well, uh, that I should be calling you queer and uh, not something else. Uh, and again, this is all part of learning as well. And, uh, uh, you know, again, this is a, 
I apologize if I offended you in any no, no, way. Thank you. Thank you for your reaction. I think just a good practice is to, you know, especially as this kind of yeah, of course, we're having that bad idea, like, but just asking folks because some people do say that they identify as homosexual. Not many, but some do. Um, and then sometimes, so I use the term queer. There are definitely some folks who are a generation or two older than me. If you use that towards them, that's a really hurtful comment to them. So I um, often gay is appropriate too, or I is, think most people yeah. are pretty okay with gay. Um, okay. So I think it, when I don't know, I often say like, you know, if we're like, oh, people in the LGBTQ community and like, let someone tell you how they identify. Because some people might say gay, like I don't identify as gay, I'm bisexual or I'm lesbian, whatever it might be. So I think it's always good just to let people name how they want to describe themselves. And that's similar yeah. for like race. Some people prefer like black, some people prefer yeah. African-American, like and when we get down like Latino, Hispanic, Chicano, like it's all complicated. Sure. Um, so for me, I always put it on like for that individual, how do you want us to talk about you or how do you describe yourself? So best to call, and if you don't know, it's best to say you're a member of LGBTQ community. Is that the right way to yeah, you, keep you know, it? And, and, even like letting them identify with that as well. And so I mean, yeah. I think that from anyone who kind of has met me and looked at my body of work will assume that I'm in the LGBTQ community. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, and I think in this context that we're in now is very different than when you're talking to someone in the workplace or whatever it is. So that's always an interesting question. I think when I meet someone being like, oh, you know, tell me about yourself and see what they say or like, oh, sure. you know, are you in a relationship with anyone? If like, oh yeah, my whatever gendered spouse that they use. And so that can mm -hmm. kind of give people the chance to out themselves. And then when it comes to like gender, that gets really complicated as well. Um, right. Because sometimes the way people identify with their gender is not always um, matching what we might visually see on the outside or even what their name that they use with that as well. Um, sure. So as you can see, so we're on Zoom right now and you can see my name and I added my pronouns to that as well. And I think that that's uh, hopefully a common practice or like when I first meet you, I'm like, hey, Karen, I'm Joshua and I use he and him pronouns. Um, yeah. So it, we're getting better with that as well. But definitely when we get into gender, gender identity and gender expression, um, it's definitely a lot more learning for all of us to do. That's great. Well, thank you for thank you for correcting me. I really appreciate it. And again, uh, one of the things that I enjoy in this podcast is just the fact that I get to learn a lot about multiple things. We are in higher education, so one of these I want to ask you the last question as we wrap up this episode on you know where do you see higher education going, especially with respect to getting this social justice as our key value proposition, you know, where where we are and where we are headed. Can you give us some insights yeah. into where higher education is headed? Yeah, I mean, before I jump into answer that question, I just wanna uh, appreciate your response. And I think that when we're talking about equity, social justice, and identity, we're all learning. And, and I think that even though this is my academic area and my profession for almost two decades now, I mess up and I'm learning too. And so I think that where I would love to see higher education go is that we give permission for people to show up as imperfect humans and learn and grow together. And so we have come to this point not just in higher education, but in almost all aspects of our country, where we're so afraid to talk about real things around identity because we're afraid that if we mess up, someone's gonna cancel us. And right. so we're all gonna mess up. 
You know, you know, I might be really good at talking about race and gender and sexuality. You know, if I'm in spaces that we're actively talking about, let's say like disability, like there's definitely lots of growth and learning I have and lots of unlearning around these nonsense ideas of how I've been trained to treat and interact with people with different types of disabilities. So that is definitely an area where, you know, I'm going to mess up in those spaces and I need to do my best to learn and acknowledge and grow and not harm other folks. So, but overall with where I see higher ed going, um, I see us progressing and doing better in many ways. And I also see us doing worse in some ways at the same time too. Um, I, I, right now I'm in the California community college system and I've been in this, uh, this system for a little over four years now. Um, and when I first got here, one of the awesome activities I got to do is to help start an LGBT center. And so at that point, I think we were one of about 10 colleges community colleges in the entire country with an LGBT center. Um, and since then, there definitely have been more. And we've been kind of advocating to try to like make this a bigger thing. Um, and so a, a super exciting accomplishment is the California Community College Chancellor's Office has given $10 million for the California community colleges to do LGBTQ advocacy work. And so that's a huge growth and a, the largest higher education system in the world with about 2 million students. So we're seeing progress there. We're seeing more and more institutions doing work around, you know, racial justice, specifically um, trying to advocate for, you know, um, Black folks within higher education. And then at the same time, I see challenges where um, a lot of my friends and myself included who've done kind of DEI roles in higher education are choosing to leave. Um, where people have left because the expectations are unrealistic. There's, it's often tokenizing. And it's often actually, if you do your job really well with challenging an organization to move away from white supremacist ideology, you get punished for it. Um, and so we need higher education to the, come to the point to where we stop playing politics and public relations and get real around like, you know what, racism is real, racism impacts our students and our employees, and we're going to name it and dress it and do better with it. Um, and very rarely have I seen higher education institutions ready to have that kind of conversation. And they often will have like, oh, we have one chief diversity officer and this one person is going to solve racism for us this year. Oh, really? Martin Luther King couldn't do it. Gandhi couldn't do it. But this one chief diversity officer is going to solve racism at your institution. It's yeah. so nonsense. Um, and so many folks who have done these roles, specifically BIPOC folks, are saying like, higher education, I am done with you. Like you're performative. You parade all these like little things around to look good. But when it comes to doing the real work, nothing happens. And so I feel like where I want to see higher education go is to actually make a plan to put some resources behind it and to name the harm that's be being done and to actually do better, even if it costs them something. Sure. Because in society, where we are today, everyone loves diversity. Everyone wants to be a champion for DEI stuff until it costs you something. Changing organizations, changing cultures, changing systems, it's gonna cost some people to be upset. And are you willing to take risks? And are you willing to like actually lose something to do what's right? And I think most of our organizations are not at that point yet where they're actually willing to maybe have some politicians upset about their policy, or maybe mm -hmm. they're going to not be willing to do it if they're going to lose a few donors. Um, and so that's where I want to see higher ed go is to be willing to take risks and put your money where your mouth has been for decades now. 
Dr. Joshua Moon Johnson, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you so much for joining the podcast and schooling me, if you will, on the issues of higher education. No, and no it's not just that. I, I, I did not realize a lot of these things that you talked about. Uh, I really appreciate your time and uh, you're welcome to my podcast anytime. I have appreciated this time. This has been a space where I've been able to engage in conversation with you in a very wonderful way. And so I think that I hope that we have more conversations that are really inquisitive, focused on learning and sharing love. And I think that that's really where we're going to see a you know, transformation actually happening in our society. So I appreciate all the work that you're doing and so happy that I got to be a part of it today. Thank you so much. Everything is a service. Whether it's finding ways to help students reach their goals within higher education, sharing medical records to patients quickly and securely, informing residential customers of an impending outage, or communicating with remote satellites thousands of miles apart, all of it requires data, integration, and communication. At Intuin, we provide services that make all of these possibilities realities. And we make it faster, simpler, secure, and easier. Because we believe everything is a service, and bringing everything together is how we can help you innovate and change the world.